Wow. 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 What's all this wowing about anyway? No, it's not me in my khaki shorts. It's the first pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope. Hey there, I'm Dave Robinson, and you're now listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science. We've got a great show for you today. It starts off with J. Scott Miller describing some of the science behind these wondrous images from the Webb Space Telescope. And then after that, Rob Weber is going to tell us about the Lower Howards Creek Nature and Heritage Preserve in Clark County, Kentucky. It just received special attention from the Geological Society of Kentucky. Following that, I'm going to tell you about some secret letters written by the last Queen of France, Marie Antoinette. And then we'll finish the show with a story from I Am a Scientist, a nonprofit effort to encourage diversity in STEM fields. So let's get going. Here is J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College telling us about the recent photos from the Webb Space Telescope. And I suggest you go online and look at the individual pics as he describes them. To do that, just do an internet search for NASA Web First Images. NASA Web First Images, and you can see these photos. Take it away, Scott. On July 12th, the first images created using the James Webb Space Telescope were released. To say they were breathtaking would be an understatement. The general sense from those in the astronomical community that have communicated about these images is that Webb is going to help further our understanding of the universe and that which makes it up. As I wrote in an earlier broadcast, Webb was launched back on Christmas Day last year. It took about a month to reach its final location some one million miles from Earth. With fingers crossed, it began the process of basically constructing itself, unfolding different parts to their final configuration. And it all had to work, because at that distance, there is no rescue mission possible. Over the next five plus months, many tests were done to demonstrate that all had configured properly, and that the scientific instruments had survived the launch and were also working as they were designed. A test image was made available to the public back in May, making those following the mission get a bit more hopeful that all was working. With the release of the new images on the 12th, this hope was vindicated. Webb seems to be working as planned, maybe even better than planned. It will now take its place among the various space-based and ground-based telescopes astronomers use to study, learn about, and teach about our universe and what makes it up. I am going to try to describe some of these images and how they compare to similar images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. The first can be thought of as a first web deep field view. Known as Galaxy Cluster SMACS 0723, it is a cluster of galaxies about 4.6 billion light years away. Generally speaking, we find galaxies in clusters and not individually scattered across the universe. Other than a few stars from our own Milky Way, spotted because of the eight-point star-like pattern around the stars themselves, one sees nothing but galaxies. Some take on the shape of classical galaxies, such as spirals or ellipticals. Others are warped, providing support of predictions using Einstein's general theory of relativity 
concerning the warping of light by gravitational masses. In this case, an intervening cluster of galaxies is collectively warping and magnifying the light from galaxies even farther away. Then there are the red dots. They too are galaxies, but galaxies extremely far away, red because of the expansion of the universe. Light from these galaxies has been stretched by that expansion, initially starting out as visible light, as from any normal galaxy, but being stretched in wavelength by expansion of the universe to red and even infrared. These extremely far galaxies, whose light is now shifted to the infrared, will be the targets of Webb. The Hubble telescope also looked at this region and spotted some of the galaxies seen in this image. But Webb's larger size and instrumentation, primarily sensitive to the infrared, allows us to see even more galaxies than HST. The second image is of what some refer to as a Southern Ring Nebula, located roughly 2,500 light years away. In an image produced by HST, one sees the expanding dust coming from a star that has come to the end of its stellar lifetime, forming a planetary nebula. Near the center are seen two stars, one bright, one dim. The bright one orbits the dim one, which is the star that produced the gas for the nebula. Colors used in the creation of the image represent gas at different temperatures, showing the cooling of that gas as it gets farther from the source. Other details within the expanding gas are also revealed in visible light. In Webb's version, two different detectors were used to produce two different images. Webb's near-infrared camera clearly shows the stars prominently at the center of the expanding gas. The mid-infrared instrument shows a second dimmer star in the HST image much more clearly, effectively stripping away the dust that had shrouded it, the advantage of looking in the infrared. Much more detail can be seen in both images, again due to the much larger collecting surface of Webb versus HST. The third image is of Stefan's Quintet. HST's image of this group revealed that only four of the five galaxies seen were gravitationally interacting with each other as they were located roughly 290 million light years away. This caused some of them to be distorted in appearance. The fifth was actually a foreground galaxy just 40 million light years away. This was demonstrated by the coloration of the galaxies, the four being a bit more yellowish and less detailed in structure than the fifth, which was bluer. And as with all HST images, not only were the target galaxies on the display, but many more in the background, reddish in color because of their greater distances. Webb's view shows much more detail in each of these galaxies, even resolving stars in the foreground galaxy. Colors used reveal shock waves created by the gravitational interaction between the clusters of four galaxies, with a resulting trigger of star formation not seen in detail before. And as with the HST image of the group, a sea of background galaxies provides a backdrop even more than the HST image because of IR capabilities and larger collecting surface. The last image I'm going to try to describe is in the northwest corner of the Carina Nebula, located about 7,600 light years away. In the HST image, one can see the dust that has been sculpted by ultraviolet radiation and stellar winds coming from a cluster of stars just beyond the edge of the image. Known to be the location of star formation, some of this is hidden in the visible light used by HST to see this portion of the Carina Nebula. 
Webb's version almost looks three-dimensional because of the higher detail due to its better resolution. Operating in the infrared, the dust that had obscured some of the star-forming regions can now be seen through, revealing stellar nurseries and individual stars. Protostellar jets coming from newly forming stars can now be seen. Collectively, images from HST and Webb will provide further understanding about the nature of stellar formation. Now, I have been emphasizing infrared radiation versus visible light, and the observant listener may ask the question, how are we seeing these images if we cannot see in the infrared? The answer was actually provided in a broadcast about these images provided by NASA. Let us say that a visible light telescope, Hubble for example, captures light in the visible using filters labeled A, B, C, and D, corresponding to wavelengths of red, yellow, green, and blue parts of the spectrum. Combinations of these can produce beautiful color images that are associated with the Hubble Space Telescope. Webb may have similar filters that operate in the infrared. We will call them E, F, G, and H at different wavelengths within the infrared band. A computer program can then map, for example, E to A, F to B, G to C, and H to D to create a color image that humans can appreciate and better understand. So the images from Webb may not be true color, but the colors used can tell us much about the nature of the object producing the infrared light. Webb may be able to produce data over the next 20 years or so, depending on its cooling systems and electronics. It is not known what will be discovered and learned about when it comes to objects within the universe, but it should be a fun journey to take. To see these new images and participate in that journey, visit webtelescope.org. Thanks to Scott Miller for that useful information. Oh, by the way, there is some controversy about the naming of this new telescope after James Webb, a former NASA administrator. We're planning on discussing this controversy in more detail on a future show, so stay tuned. Next up, though, Rob Weber of the Kentucky Academy of Science. He's going to tell us about Lower Howard's Creek in Clark County, Kentucky, just a little east of Lexington. Take it away, Rob. Kentucky now has five places designated as distinguished geologic sites. That's because the Geological Society of Kentucky recently added a new site to its list when it selected the Lower Howard's Creek Nature and Heritage Preserve for the honor. We talked with Frank Ettenson, and he explained why his group selected this preserve in Clark County that you'll find just upstream of the well-known Halls on the River restaurant. Ettenson is a UK professor who's a past president of the Geological Society of Kentucky, as well as a past president of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Well, we look for a site that has human cultural value, that has geologic value, and a site that is public, and a site that is easily accessible. All four of those things. Uh, it's tough to find a site that has all four of those things. And so we've only gotten done five of them so far in the time we've been doing this. A number of the members from the uh, Geological Society come from this area, basically. And one of them in particular grew up in this area, and he suggested this as a possibility and it met all of our criteria, and so we chose it. Uh, we chose this pre-COVID, 
And so we have been waiting to do this for a while since uh, uh, 2020. And we just decided to go with it. Even though COVID is still with us, we decided to go with this and do this now. The Lower Howards Creek Nature and Heritage Preserve includes a gorge where visitors can see the oldest exposed rocks in the state. Rocks at this portion of Lower Howards Creek near the Kentucky River were formed between 453 million and 457 million years ago when North America was largely covered by shallow seas and what is now Kentucky was about 20 degrees south of the equator. Some of the Camp Nelson limestone along the lower portion of this creek is riddled with dolomite-filled burrows, evidence that worm-like creatures once tunneled through ancient mud. These are the oldest exposed rocks in Kentucky, but also it's the gorge. We really have not talked about this gorge, but this gorge was probably cut in the last two million years uh, during glaciation. And although this part of Kentucky was not glaciated, we have glaciers coming down as far as northern Kentucky. They were imagine two to 10,000 feet of ice as far as northern Kentucky. And all the water got sucked up into those glaciers, sea level dropped. And so as sea level dropped, the rivers had to cut down to keep pace with it. And so we have gorges, we have Red River Gorge, we have the Palisades, this gorge, they're all related to that uh, geologic event. The preserve has ties to historically important pioneers and settlers and is home to federally endangered plants. Although it's a public site, access has been restricted since 2020 to protect natural and cultural resources. Still, visitors can hike on the John Holder Trail, take part in an organized hike, or arrange a scheduled hike. You can find more information at LowerHowardsCreek.org. Again, that's LowerHowardsCreek.org. Appreciating a site like the Lower Howards Creek Preserve serves as a reminder that geologic marvels are all around. This kind of stuff occurs everywhere. It just happens that it's, this is a preserve, but uh, you've got to look at just below your feet and geology is everywhere. It influences our life, everything we do, even though we don't realize it. Reporting for the Kentucky Academy of Science, this is Rob Weber. Thanks to Rob Weber for filling us in on that, and thank you to Professor Frank Edinson, too. Boy, I really want to see this place now. Now for something just a little bit different. Dave Robinson here, and my story this week is about revolution, palace intrigue, and maybe even royal love. It involves these secret letters that were exchanged between the last Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, and her rumored lover, Count Axel von Fersen of Sweden. Now, Marie Antoinette became Queen of France in 1774, at the tender age of 18. Nineteen years after becoming queen, following the French Revolution, her husband, King Louis XVI, would be killed by the guillotine. She herself was executed the same way just nine months later, as she was not a popular queen with the people. She was a lavish spender and opposed many social and financial reforms. 
She was accused of promiscuity, of having illegitimate children, and of having sympathies with France's enemies at the time, most notably Austria, which was her birthplace. Well, two years before her death, she would have been only 35 years old at that time, she was essentially under house arrest. She and the king were held under tight guard in the Tuileries Palace in Paris. In spite of being closely scrutinized by the revolutionary government at the time, Marie, though, still maintained secret correspondence with her close friend and suspected lover, Count von Fersen of Sweden. Now, the queen and the count had been friends for decades, but there were lots of rumors about an illicit love affair between the two. The count even left France for two years to go to America to help General George Washington and his troops during the American Revolution, ironic as that is, since he's a royal himself. But there is a belief that the reason the count left France was to perhaps cool things down between him and the French royal court. To provide some evidence, I'll quote an observer of the two during the earliest stages of their friendship. He wrote, quote, The young Count Ferson has been so well received by the queen that this has given umbrage to several persons. I own that I cannot help thinking she had a liking for him, as I have seen too many indications to doubt it. The conduct of the young count has been admirable on this occasion for its modesty and reserve, but above all in his decision to go to America. By thus departing, he avoided all dangers, but it needed evidently a firmness beyond his years to surmount their seduction. The queen's eyes could not leave him during the last days, and they often filled with tears." So it looks like there was some electricity between Marie Antoinette and the Count. And while she was under house arrest and he was in his native Sweden, there were numerous letters written between the two. The original letters appeared to have been destroyed, however, but there are eight copies transcribed by hand now kept in the French National Archives. The unfortunate thing about these eight letters, though, is that most of the text has been scrawled over with thick black ink, so you can't read the text that's underneath the ink. In other words, they were redacted, just like the government will hide portions of documents that are released to the public. You can't read the entire document. So for years now, historians have wondered what was originally on those letters written between Marie Antoinette and the Count. Well, thanks to a visualization technique called X-ray fluorescence spectrometry, historians now have a better idea about what these letters say. And by the way, this paper was published in Science Advances on October 1st, 2021. This technique, X-ray fluorescence spectrometry, reveals the chemical signatures of the different inks that were used to write the letter without destroying the letters themselves. It does this by shooting an X-ray beam at the letter, which excites the atoms in the sample into a higher energy state, and that causes the ink to emit its own X-rays along a spectrum characteristic of its elemental makeup, like copper, zinc, 
and iron that's in the ink. So Marie Antoinette used only one type of ink. The Count used another type of ink when he was copying her letters. And so they can now distinguish between each of the relative amounts of copper, zinc, or iron. And so, yes, for some reason, the Count did make a handwritten copy of each of Marie Antoinette's letters. They didn't have photocopy machines back then, don't forget. Perhaps the idea was he could destroy the original letter in public to ease suspicions about him. So now that we can read these letters, what's in them? Well, the letters are mostly political, and much of that political communication was unredacted. But what's in the redacted part? Well, unfortunately, not all of the redacted parts are legible using this technique because Count von Frierson used the same ink for his redactions as he did for the writing. But some parts were legible. Some of the scribbled-over text includes words like beloved, tender friend, adore, and madly, which makes them sound pretty romantic. In one letter, the Count redacted a line and added text above it in the same ink to ensure that the line would still be readable. What was the change he made? The original line from Marie was, quote, The letter of the 28th made my happiness, unquote. He changed it to be, quote, The letter of the 28th reached me, unquote which seems like he was trying to make the letters a little more businesslike and a little less personal. Why did the Count do all this redaction and all this altering of the text? Well, it might have been to protect the reputation and the life of Marie Antoinette herself, but it could have been also to protect his own reputation or perhaps that of another woman in his life, as he did have another lover at that time. So, how much of their relationship was personal versus political may never be truly known, but it does now look like there was some level of intimacy between the two that the Count was trying to hide. Regardless, what is known is that the Count kept those letters for the rest of his life, even though it put him at significant risk. If it is a love story, it certainly is a tragic one. Marie Antoinette died by the guillotine at the age of 37. Count von Fersen was violently killed by an angry mob in Stockholm 17 years later. And finally, STEM education. How are we going to encourage young people to pursue careers in the sciences, technology, engineering, and math? How are we going to promote inclusivity in those fields? How could we make scientists and their work more relatable to young people? Well, that's what the I Am a Scientist initiative is trying to do. Here's an introduction to their important work. They start off asking kids to name as many scientists as they could. Well, how would you do on that? What scientists could you name off the top of your head? Some scientists that I've seen is... Bill Nye, um, 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 I can name Albert Einstein. 
pretty much Albert Einstein. That's pretty much the only one I can remember. I know Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein and Isaac Newton. Doc Ock from Spider-Man. Dexter, Jimmy Neutron. With Doctor Who count, I don't know. We always watch in science, Bill Nye the Science Guy. I think that a lot of us have gone on to Google search images and the first thing that comes up when you search for a scientist is a caricature of an old white man with maybe tufts of white hair on the side and glasses falling off of his uh, nose. All of the scientists that they named fit a very specific mold that Hollywood and history books and television shows and comics all tend to mirror. Role models matter. Whether or not you see people that you can connect with, doing a particular thing matters. I think there tends to be this two-dimensional flat view of what a scientist is. I think we tend to, again, be stereotyped into a group that's dull and boring and out of touch with society. I think we are not portrayed as who we really are. It's very difficult for children and for anyone to imagine ourselves in a position where we can't see anything about that position that we could relate to. People from different cultural backgrounds, people of different racial makeups, people of different political beliefs, religious beliefs, sexual orientations, all of these things need to be represented more in science. The world of research professionals in science is currently not very diverse. Specifically, it is in the United States not reflective of the diversity of the population of this country. It's not just about gender or race, it's about interests that people have, it's about the kinds of people they are. There is systemic bias of all kinds against minority groups of all kinds, as there always has been in human society since the beginning of human society. The more different types of people children can see are able to do science, the more different types of children might think that they could also do science and might become interested in science. All kids are scientists. All kids are constantly asking, why is the sky blue? Why is the sun not out today? They're asking science questions all the time. And if we can let them know that they're already doing science just by being curious about the world, then I think that can be really exciting for them to realize that they're already scientists. I live in a community where there are fascinating people looking at tremendously interesting problems, a diversity of perspectives, yet they don't really travel beyond our borders here. I think we, we are not visible. I think curiosity is the thing to foster in everyone. When you talk to kids, they know about being a lawyer, they know about being a doctor, but the pursuit of science is something that's a little far afield. And that could be because there's limited exposure. After all, you're not going to go into a profession unless you see a path for yourself in that profession. And the easiest way to see a path is to see people that are like you. Breaking down those barriers, making people aware that they harbor these stereotypes and that there are many counter examples suggesting that maybe the stereotype in and of itself should be revised. It's not just about science. It's about making sure that kids don't feel barriers. 
It's about making sure that kids don't internalize the messaging that society is giving them about what they can or can't do. I'd like to learn more about how me being a scientist could help other people and how we could like change the world and stuff. You can be a scientist if you want to. I think anyone can be a scientist if they want to and like nothing should stop from trying. But trying to it, you can do anything. That was a video produced by the I Am A Scientist group. We'll put a link to their website and to this video on our SoundCloud page and our Facebook page. Just search for our show, Bench Talk The Weekend Science. Many thanks to I Am A Scientist for letting us play this clip. You've been listening to Bench Talk The Weekend Science. Thanks a lot and see you next week.